Well, good morning. If you're not already there, Revelation chapter 19, we're going to be picking it up in verse 11 today of our continuing journey through the book of Revelation. We're getting close to the end. Uh, just a few chapters left and a few weeks left in our, in our study. That's been very exciting as we've gone verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the incredible book of Revelation. If you're uh, using one of the Bibles provided this morning, I believe it's on page 499. I want to ask you guys uh, to be praying for myself and uh, Pastor Barry. Uh, we will be leaving this afternoon uh, from DIA about 4 o'clock, and we are going to be headed to Manila, Philippines this week. Uh, some of you may remember about a year ago, there was a church that was getting started in the Philippines. We have our missionaries, Luke and Kelly Lyons, that are over there, and they shared an opportunity for us as a church that for $6,000, we could fully sponsor a church plant in the Philippines for one year, and we took that on, and we, we gave them that $6,000 about a year ago, and next Sunday, July 17th is going to be the grand opening of this brand new baby church that the Orchard Church is sponsored here in Denver all the way in Manila, Philippines. Isn't that exciting? And so they have... Uh They've invited us to come over for the grand opening, and we said, man, we wouldn't miss it, so we're going to be taking some video and pictures, and then the following week, on Sunday, we'll be back, and we'll share that with you and, and talk about that trip and what God is doing over there, and so we're really excited about this opportunity, so be in prayer for us as we travel. It's about a 24-hour travel day uh, from Denver all the way to Manila. We've got to go to Detroit tonight and stay the night, and then we fly out tomorrow morning to Nagano, I think, Japan, and then from Japan to the Philippines, and I I've made the trip. This is my fourth trip to the Philippines. Maybe you really need to pray for Pastor Barry because he's never made this trip. He has no idea what he is in for. So you might need to really lift up prayers for him. But be praying for this new baby church and their grand opening in a brand new area outside of Manila. Um, it's an area that they, they basically moved an entire community of about 50,000 people because if you remember about a year and a half ago, there was major flooding in Manila in the Philippines and it wiped out entire cities. And so they moved 50,000 people about 30 miles outside of the city. And so they started a brand new church out there for those 50,000 people. And so this is an exciting opportunity for our church to be a part of that. And so pray for us as we leave and, and, and head out there uh, this afternoon. Um, have you guys ever been so excited about something that you just couldn't sleep? Anybody ever like that? Now, I know you guys are going to find this hard to believe, but sometimes I'm... I get easily excited about things. And uh, I am the worst about getting so excited about something that I cannot sleep. And my wife gives me... My wife, I, she has the gift of sleep. It doesn't matter what's happening the next day, man. She lays her head on the pillow. We'll be in conversation and like 30 seconds in, she's out. And I'm like, There's, how can anybody go to sleep that fast? You know, we get in the car to go on a trip. She's like, oh, honey, I'll keep you up. Yeah, right. Like five minutes into the trip, gone. You know, I'm like, ah. And, but, but I get excited about stuff. And I remember as a kid growing up, man, when Christmas, you know, Christmas Eve would come. And we were a family to open our gifts on Christmas morning. I never slept a wink on Christmas Eve. I mean, maybe an hour as a kid. And I, it's still to this day, I got to admit it, I get excited about Christmas Eve and Christmas and my kids, you know. And I love to fish and I love to hunt. And when hunting season comes around this fall, it never fails. You know, you, you got to try to get sleep because you're going to wake up at like 4 or 5 o'clock to get out in the woods. And, and I, I never can sleep. You know, I'm laying in the camper. I'm wide awake all night going, I need to get to sleep. I need to, and I, I'm so excited that, that I can't get to sleep. You know, maybe it's a vacation, something like that. Well, 
I, I, this event, and I want to remind you, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we set up this passage we're about to look at in Revelation 19. This is the most exciting event on God's calendar. I mean, this is the event that all the Bible has been talking about, the return of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And this is the event that God is most excited about over any event that you read about in the Bible. It's not going to keep God up all night because he's up all night anyway. But this is the significance of this event, the return of the king. You know, Jesus told us 2,000 years ago before he left to go back to heaven to be seated at the right hand of his father. He said in Matthew 24, 30, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man. What's the next word? Coming, coming again on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It's the event that we've been waiting for right here in Revelation 19, the event that is, is coming very soon. And Jesus, 2,000 years ago when he left, he said, I'll be back. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he stole that from Jesus, you know. Except Jesus probably didn't have the accent, you know. But he said, I'll be back. And we're waiting for that event. One Christian writer, um, he's gone on to be with the Lord. He said this, his name is Vance Havner. He said, the early believers were not looking for something to happen. They were looking for someone to come. Looking for the train to arrive is one thing, but looking for someone we love to come on that train is another matter. You know, we're not, it's, it's easy when you study the book of Revelation to get caught up in these events and prophecies and, you know, last days and things that are happening. And, and let's never forget, folks, we're not just looking for things to happen. We're looking for someone to come. And that person is Jesus Christ. That's the name of this book. It's not just Revelation. It's the revelation of who, church? Jesus Christ, that's the title of the book. And if you weren't here two weeks ago when we set up this passage, I took an entire Sunday just to set up how important this event is. I really encourage you to go to our website, orchardchurchonline.com. You can watch that video because we took a whole week to, to just tell you how significant this event is before we just jump into it. And, and I just want to remind you that this is the event that is talked about 1,800 times in the Old Testament. This is the event today we're going to look at that is talked about 300 times in the New Testament. 27 of the Old Testament books talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. 23 uh, of the New Testament books talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. 60 of the 66 books in the Bible talk about this event. It's also interesting to, to remember this and realize, if you don't, that the Bible talks eight times more about the second coming of Jesus Christ than when he came the very first time, at what we call Christmas. So, so why is this day so special? I mean, why is God so excited about the day of the Lord, the second coming, the, the day that the Bible just starts calling that day and everybody knows what day it is? Because this is the day when Jesus Christ will come and he'll rid the world of all evil. He'll deal with the, the beast, the antichrist, the false prophet. He'll deal with Satan. He'll set up his millennial reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem. We'll come with him as we're going to see today. And here's the key. Jesus Christ will finally get the ultimate glory and honor that he is due. That he did not get the first time that he came. That's why this event is so significant. And I want to remind you again, if you're a guest today, or, or just to remind all of us, this event is separate from the rapture. We believe the next prophetic event on God's calendar is the rapture of the church where we will be taken to meet the Lord in the air. He'll not physically come to the earth. We'll go meet Him. And then that will trigger seven years of tribulation on this earth that we've been reading about in chapters 6 through 18. And then this event will take place. The literal, physical, second coming of Jesus Christ 
also known as the day of the Lord. Now when we opened our study in Revelation, you remember in chapter 4, John saw heaven opened, and it was opened so John could be caught up to heaven. And it was a picture of the rapture of the church. And then we went from chapter 6 to 18, and everything was mainly focusing on the tribulation on the earth. Now in chapter 19, we're going to see here that heaven is opened once again, but it's not for the church to be caught up, but for the church to come back to earth and Jesus to come back to earth here at the end of Revelation. So let's pick up our text here in Revelation 19, verse 11. John says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, and can we say it, church? King of kings and Lord of lords. I mean, this is the picture of the return of the king, Jesus Christ. The king of kings and Lord of lords. And as we look at this passage and the next passage this morning to finish up chapter 19, John points out two major themes in this passage that I want us to focus on. The conqueror and the conquest. We begin with looking at the conqueror himself, Jesus Christ. Notice that he's described as a rider on a white horse. You remember back in Revelation chapter 6, we saw another rider on a white horse, but it wasn't Jesus Christ, it was who, church? Anti-Christ, and he was trying to imitate what the second coming is going to look like, and he used that to deceive people. But now in Revelation 19, we see the true Christ, Jesus Christ, riding on a white horse, and we know this is Jesus and not the Antichrist because of how John describes this conqueror, Jesus Christ that's coming, through his names and his descriptions. And let's point these out, and you might want to underline some of these as we look at these passages in detail. First of all, we know this is Jesus on the white horse because of the names that John gives him. You know, names today, uh, when we name babies and, and you know, we've got, we got, man, we have babies born here all the time. I say this to young, young moms all the time. If you want to have a baby, come to the Orchard Church. We're good at having babies, you know. Our church is about reproduction spiritually, but it seems like we're good at it physically too. And we just had some other babies born. We got a lot of other young mothers that are pregnant. And everybody's trying to figure out, what am I going to name my baby? And, you know, you always want to try to pick a name that nobody else is choosing. You know, you kind of want to try to be a little bit unique most of the time. So I want to help some of you young mothers out. If you're, if you're having a baby or getting ready to, these were the most popular names in the state of Colorado last year. Okay? This is last year's most popular names. So if, if you don't want your child to have a name that everybody else has, you might want to pay attention to these. Okay, These are the top five. I'll go from five to one. Uh, these are the boys' names. Jacob, Alexander, Noah, William, and the number one name in Colorado in 2010 was Daniel. Okay, So if you don't want your kids to grow up in class and they say Daniel and ten kids go, yeah, then th those, those are the names. And I noticed that uh, they gave the top hundred Douglas didn't even make the top hundred. So if you want a really original, unique name for your kid, Douglas. Doug is a really good name to choose, ladies. Just throwing that out there, okay? Here's the top five girl baby names in Colorado in 2010, five to one. Uh, Isabella, Sophia, 
Olivia, I guess they all got to end in uh, uh, Emma, and then number one was Abigail. Those were the, the top five names. But you know, we choose names today based on a lot of different reasons, but in the Bible, I think most of you know this, names were very significant. And they had meaning. They always had a meaning to them. And the parents would choose the name based upon what it means. And so here when we see Jesus given different names, John's trying to let us know who this is and something about God's character and about him. And first of all, he gives them the name in verse 11. He says he, his name is Faithful and True. Faithful and true. Now contrast that with the beast, the Antichrist we've been studying about from chapter 6 to 18, who is unfaithful and untrue and false. We know that he makes a seven-year peace treaty with Israel, but three and a half years into it, what does he do? He becomes unfaithful to Israel and he breaks that peace treaty. We know that we've read several times in Revelation that everything about the beast and the Antichrist, he's a liar, he's a conniver, he's a deceiver. He's just the opposite of Jesus who is faithful and true. You know, John 8.44, Jesus said this, describing Satan, which we know is the power behind the Antichrist. He's actually, um, you know, has embodied the Antichrist. Said this, speaking of Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in what? Truth. He does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources because he's a liar and the father of it. But Jesus Christ is just the opposite. He is faithful and true. He keeps his promises. Aren't you thankful for that truth this morning? Isn't that one of the things you love about Jesus, your Savior? He's faithful to you. He's true. You can trust him. He never deceives. He never lies. The Bible says he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And when he promises to come back for us, you can, you can count on that promise. Amen? Because he's faithful, he's true, and that ought to bring great encouragement to all of us today practically. No matter what you're going through in your life, when you know Jesus, he is faithful, he is true, you can count on him, you can trust him, you can rely upon him. Another name he has given here, John says in verse 12, he says he's got a name written on him that no one knew. Now, this, I think, can be linked back to Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, because remember it talked about the Christians in heaven. When we get there, we're going to be given a new name. It's a secret name. It's probably the same name that this is talking about. And so I've figured this out. I've figured out this name that nobody else knows. You all believe that? No. There's no reason for us to sit here and try to figure this out because the Bible says we don't know this name. I believe one day we will, but right now we don't. And so it's, it's exciting to know we're going to learn more and new things about Jesus Christ and ourselves when he comes. But we'd be wasting time to try to figure out this name that God says no one knows. Verse 13, I love this name, and you've heard this before. Jesus has given the title, the name, the Word of God. If you've heard that before, say yes. That Jesus is also called the Word of God, the Word made flesh. You know, John wrote five books of the Bible. He wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he wrote the book of Revelation. And he's the only one of the writers that gives Jesus this title, the Word of God. And he gave him this title at the very beginning of his first gospel in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now why does God give Jesus the name, the Word of God? Why does John call him the Word of God? Well, it is with our words 
that we reveal our hearts and our minds to people and how we communicate. And it is through Jesus Christ, God's Son, that He reveals His heart and His mind and how He communicates with us. That's how we enjoy a relationship with God, through the Word, Jesus Christ. Both Jesus, the physical Word, both Jesus, the Word, the written Word of God. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. And then in verse 16, you've got to love this, man. It's in bold letters in your Bible, capitalized. He's got the name, the title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Jesus' victorious name. This is Jesus' sovereign name. This is the name that lets us know he is going to rule, he's going to reign, he's going to be king. He deserves this position. This would have had particular meaning to the writers in the first century that John was specifically writing to because remember, they were under the rule of the Roman Empire. And it was very well known that the Roman emperor had given himself the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And John's writers would have read this and been reminded that it's not the Roman emperor, it's not the one in the first century or the second century or any century, it's Jesus Christ alone that deserves that title. King of Kings, Lord of Lords, ruler. And when Jesus returns, no one will be in charge except for him. And he will call the shots. So we see the names of the conqueror that lets us know this is Jesus Christ. And then we see his descriptions. We've seen his names, now we see his descriptions. And John uses a lot of symbolism here, just as he has in most of this book. And in verse 12, he describes him as one who has eyes were like a flame of fire. You know, this is the second time that John has described Jesus' eyes with like a flame of fire. Remember back in the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 14, when Jesus showed up to him and started talking to John and told him, you're going to get this vision, you're going you're to understand what revelation and what's going to happen. And he described him as have one having eyes that were a flame of fire. Okay, what is that symbolic of? It's symbolic of judgment, of one who sees all and righteously judges. Nothing gets by Jesus. If you agree with that, say yes. You know, we can fool a lot of people, but we can't fool Jesus. And he sees all, and all will give an account. Romans says, every one of us will give an account of ourselves before God. Proverbs 15.3 says it this way. Boy, this, I tell you, this is a convicting verse to me. This is a verse that helps keep me in line. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in how many places, church? Every place. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. <laughs> I mean, if we stopped right there today, y'all, that's enough conviction to keep us straight for the next few weeks. If we really wake up every day and remember that truth, that Jesus has eyes like a flame of fire. You ever heard that phrase like, man, they, they looked at me and their eyes just like burned through me. That comes from the Bible. But Jesus can see right through us. I remember as a kid, uh, and I think I've still seen these from time to time, they, they try to sell these like x-ray glasses. You remember those as a kid, they put them in a magazine, buy these glasses and you can see right through. And the only ones that have that capability is TSA, okay? They got that now. But, you know, you, you could buy these glasses, they didn't see right through anything, but Jesus' eyes do. And he sees everywhere we go, everything we say, every thought we have, Every motive we have, you know, that ought to convict all of us as Christians to be careful what we say, what we do, where we go, what we think, because Jesus knows and he sees all. His eyes are like a flame of fire. 
In verse 12 it says that he describes him with another symbol that it says on his head he had many crowns. This again reminding us of the obvious that he's going to rule as king of kings and lord of lords. And he is going to be the king of the earth when he returns. I remind you again the first time Jesus came they mocked him. They made fun of him. They said oh hail king of the Jews. And they put a crown of thorns and pressed it into his head. But when he comes the second time, it will not be a crown of thorns. It will be a literal crown as he rules and reigns in Jerusalem. Verse 13 is very interesting what John describes. It says that he has a robe dipped in blood. Now, be careful with the, your interpretation of this. This is not the blood of Jesus. Because the blood of Jesus was shed on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. He doesn't need to shed any more blood for sins. That was all taken. When he said it is finished on the cross after he shed his blood, you know what he said? It's paid in full. Amen? It's not Jesus' blood that's going to be shed the second time. This blood that is on his robe is not the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of his enemies. It's the blood of the armies that are going to try to defeat him. It's the blood of those that have mocked him and blasphemed him and taken the mark of the beast and, 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 and want to have nothing to do with Jesus. And when he comes to defeat them, as we'll see in a moment, it's that blood. Verse 17 to 21, we're going to read in just a moment. It's that blood that is on his robe. It reminds us where this is going to happen. We studied this back in chapter 14, verse 20 of Revelation as we looked at the battle of... Armageddon, as people call it. A battle from Megiddo in the north of Israel down to the Basra in the south. It's 184 miles where this, the, the World War III, if you will, will take place. Where the armies of the world are first going to come against Israel, but then they're going to turn on Jesus and try to defeat him. But they will be the ones that are defeated. And it's that blood that we read about that will be spilled, that will be on the robe of Jesus when he returns as he takes out his enemies and there's a very, very detailed description of this. We don't have to guess at this. In Isaiah 63, 1 through 3, it's a lengthy, but let me read it to you and listen to the detail. And again, this was written like 3,000 years ago. Before Jesus even came the first time, Isaiah is prophesying about this event we're reading about. And it says this, the, the prophet says, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? That's exactly the distance of 184 miles where the battle of Armageddon will take place. This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Who or why is your, is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? And he answers, I have trodden the winepress alone and from the people no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger, trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes. That's a very detailed description of Jesus' second coming and how he'll deal with his enemies. It won't be his blood that is shed. Verse 15, how is he going to defeat the enemies? Well, verse 15, John describes it. Out of his mouth goes a what? A sharp sword. Well, wow. Now, I've, I've heard people try to explain this, that when Jesus comes back, he got this big old sword sticking out of his mouth, and he's going to just wave it. And No, this is symbolic. And we don't have to wonder or guess at this. One of the things we teach you here at the Orchard Church, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. And if you will just compare Scripture with Scripture, it will reveal these truths to you. And this is one that we don't have to guess at. When it's, it's using the symbol as out of Christ's mouth is coming like a, a sword. Remember Hebrews 4.12, what it says? For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. What is sharper than any two-edged sword? 
The word of God. It's the word of God that will be used to defeat his enemies. You see, the same Jesus that spoke the worlds into existence will, with his word, speak the armies of the earth out of existence. That's how powerful our God is. That's how powerful Jesus Christ is. He just says the word and it's done. Verse 15, there's a description that it says he will rule when he comes back with a rod of iron. This rod can also be translated shepherd's staff, like a shepherd. But it's a symbol, it's a rod of iron, it's a symbol of justice. Justice will be perfectly done from Jesus who has eyes who can see everything and nothing gets by him. That's how he'll rule for a thousand years during the millennium when he sets up his kingdom on the earth. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. Why will Jesus need to rule with a rod of iron if everyone during the millennium is going to be a Christian because all the enemies were defeated and the church is coming back? Isn't everybody going to be Christian so everybody's going to be behaving and doing everything right? No. Not everybody's going to be Christians. There's a thousand year millennial reign, and I don't want to get too far ahead, we'll see this in chapter 20 and 21. There's going to be a thousand year millennial reign of Christ, and guess what? There's going to be some babies born. There's going to be people that grow up, and they're going to have to make a personal decision for Christ, for or against, just like you and I have. Not Christians that are already in heaven, but the ones that will be born during the millennium. And so, during that time, there will be some people that will make some wrong choices. And Jesus will rule with a rod of iron and he will bring justice. He'll make sure that everybody stays in line during the millennium. And no one gets out of line. And we'll, we'll get into that in a little more detail. You couldn't turn on the news this week without everybody talking about the uh, Casey Anthony verdict. And you know, the thing that people are talking about and asking is, was justice really served? I mean, was this just another acquittal like we saw with O.J. Simpson where everybody, it seems, goes... This person is guilty, and yet they got away with it, you know? And only God knows the truth. But I know there's a lot of strong feelings about this. Well, I have some good news for all of you. When Jesus Christ comes at the millennial, his millennial reign, no one will be able to get away with anything. All the evidence will be clear, and justice will be served, and it will be perfect, and it will be exact during his millennial reign. And no one is going to be acquitted of anything they've truly done. And that's a good reminder for us. Verse 15, John gives another description that's symbolic for us. He says that who is the, you know, he describes him as one who treads the winepress in the winepress of, of Almighty God. We talked about the winepress back in Revelation chapter 14 when we talked about the battle of Armageddon. It was described like an area that was like a winepress where someone would get in and they would, would walk on the grapes and the grapes, the juice would be flow out. But it was a description of that's how the blood is going to flow from the enemies during the battle of Armageddon when this takes place and that Jesus himself will be the one in the wine press because he's the one that is going to deal with the enemies. He's the one that's going to defeat them and that's what this is a picture of, of, of the Armageddon and what we've already read about in chapter 14. But I want you to notice this, what John described in verse 14. And the armies in heaven, clothed in linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Here's the deal, church. And you've heard this before. Jesus is not alone when he comes back at his second coming. There are some people clothed in white linen, riding on white horses, coming called the armies of heaven with Jesus at the second coming. Now, the question is, who are these in the armies of heaven? Well, let me tell you what the Bible tells us who they are. We don't have to guess at this. First of all, it will include the angels of heaven. 
It'll include the angels. Matthew 25, 31, Jesus told us, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all His holy angels with Him. So thousands and thousands and millions of holy angels that God created will come with Him. They'll be part of this army, but most of you know this, that's not the only ones with Him. Because not only will the angels be with Him, but this army will be made up of the church. Christians that were raptured seven years before, we get on our white horses, we follow him. We learned this last week or a couple weeks ago back in chapter 19, verse 8, because look what it says. And this is describing the church in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It was granted that she was arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. That's what we wear, and that's exactly how you see those described riding the white horse. The same language, letting us know it's the same group of people. It's in the same context. The church will come back with Jesus Christ at His second coming. And you don't have to go any further than Jude 14 to understand this, because Jude said, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands, that means many, many, of His what? Of His saints, believers, Christians, the church. To execute judgment on all. You see, the first time, this is the first time the church is going to be seen on the earth in chapter 19 since we last saw the church in heaven back in Revelation chapter 4. Nowhere from chapter 16 to 18 do you find the church on the earth because we've already been raptured and we're in heaven. That's one reason why we believe that the church will be raptured, then there will be seven years of tribulation, and then the second coming the church will come back with Christ. But the church now shows up again coming with Jesus to the earth for his millennial reign. But here's the good news. If some of y'all are freaked out, you're like, I don't like to fight. I don't want to get in a battle. I'm not interested in that. Well, I got good news for you. We don't have to fight. We don't have to do anything. We just get to watch. We get to enjoy. We get to be spectators. The army will not have to fight because the Bible clearly tells us Christ himself will defeat the enemies through three great victories. And we're going to look at two of those as we finish chapter 19 as he will be the conqueror. So we've seen the, the uh, conqueror, now we see the conquest of the conqueror. The conquest, number two. Jesus will take care of the armies of the earth himself, and we will cheer him on. Verse 17 to 21. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. Now you remember, we started out chapter 19, and we saw a supper, but it wasn't on the earth, it was in heaven, and it was with the church. It was the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you remember that, say yes. Now we close chapter 19 with another supper, but it's not in heaven, it's on the earth. And it's not with the church, it's the supper of the great God against the enemies of God. And he calls the birds for this supper, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. This would be, they're going to bring war against Jesus and the church, or they think they are. Then the beast was captured, and the beast is who, church? The Antichrist. We've seen that over and over in Revelation. Then the beast, the Antichrist, was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest of the armies of the earth were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him, Jesus, who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with his flesh, or with their flesh. 
Isn't that a great image this morning? We have a video we'd like you to see. No, I'm just... Some might call this the end times golden corral. It's really bad, I know, but I know, sorry. I mean, I mean if you really understand what's going to happen here, it's not good. It's not pretty, but it's literal. It's going to happen. What is going to happen? Jesus, the conqueror, is going to bring his conquest, and he's going to do two things. Let me give them to you. First of all, Jesus will defeat the armies of the earth. We just read about it. He'll defeat the armies of the earth. This is what many call the battle of Armageddon. Okay, we, we read about it. We learned a little bit about it in chapter 14, but now we see it happen. And, and, and so many people call it the battle of Armageddon. But did you know that you cannot find that phrase in the Bible? The battle of Armageddon? That, that's a phrase that men have come up with. And, and really, it's a not a good phrase. Because it's not going to be the battle of Armageddon. It's really going to be the slaughter of Armageddon. It's really not going to be a battle. There's not going to really be any fighting and there's not really going to be any war. Because Jesus, like that, is going to speak the word and defeat his enemies in a, in a moment. Verse 17, we see this, this angel standing in the sun. And, and, and get a picture of this. What's this angel doing? He, it's like he's got the big triangle dinner bell. And he's ringing it and he's going, alright birds, get ready. You're about to have a big meal. And it's the flesh of the armies of the earth that have come against Christ and against His army. The ones that have rejected Him and blasphemed Him and taken the mark of the beast, they wanted to have... And, it, and let me remind you, I want to keep coming back to this. I always feel, feel bad because I go, oh, we got some guests here and you haven't been through all this study and so you need to be reminded of this. By the time this happens, these people have said no to Jesus many, many times. Right, church? I mean, we've seen God's love and mercy and grace and patience over and over and over in the book of Revelation. But this is a group of people that have said no to God. They've said yes to the Antichrist. They've blasphemed God. Now they want to fight against God. And now they get what they deserve. It's interesting, as I said, chapter 19 opens with the marriage supper of the Lamb, but it closes, chapter 19, with the supper of the great God as the birds of the air feast on these armies that will be defeated of the earth. And that brings us to a very interesting question. If you're living in the last days and you are alive when all of this happens, you have to ask yourself this question. Would you rather be the main guest at the marriage supper of the Lamb or be the main course at the supper of the great God? I'm just being real, y'all. I mean, would you rather eat dinner with Christ or be eaten for dinner? by the birds. I mean, that's, that's really the two choices that are presented here. And I thank God that He's given us for, through His love and His mercy and grace an opportunity to be in heaven and to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb and feast with Him instead of being feasted on. I mean, I, to me, if, you, if you're still, maybe you're here today and you're like kind of not sure if you want to follow Christ or not, that to me is not a difficult decision if you just think logically. Which one would you want to be a part of? But here's the deal. If you're going to feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb, if you're going to be a part of the church that gets raptured and you get to eat dinner with Christ, you've got to make your reservations. This is the most important meal that will take place in all of eternity. 
You don't just show up and try to get reservations. You've got to make your reservations. You've got to make them now. You know, sometimes you watch these movies and you see movies and they'll, they'll, you know, a couple will go to a really, really, really fine dining, nice restaurant and the guy will go up to the, you know, the counter there, you know, to the hostess and say, hey, we need a table. And they're like, sorry, we're booked up, you know, for like four hours, you know. Do you have a reservation? No. And they're like, oh, man. And so sometimes you'll see the guy, you know, like slip a 20, you know, to the hostess. And they're, oh, right over here, sir. And, you know, get him a 10. Listen, y'all, when we get to the heaven, we're not going to slip Peter a 20 at the pearly gates. Not like, oh, here you go. No, you've got to make your reservation, and you have to make it now. You say, well, what's the number that I call? John 3, 16. <laughs> There's your number. Write it down. Dial it up. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, get eaten by the birds, but have everlasting life. But you have a choice. You have a choice. We all have a choice to make. I hope you've made your reservations. I hope your white horse is waiting for you. Like I told you two weeks ago, I'm going to have a little white pony. Not too big, I fall off. But I want you to notice this as we bring this to a close. Because there is a really, really practical application that we want to make sure we don't miss. And I think God, if you pay attention to the words in the Bible, they start jumping off the page and you go, oh, okay, I get it. There's a, there's a really good practical application in this passage. Because, you know, if, you, if you're here today and you go, I, I've already accepted Christ. My reservations are made. My name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's where God puts your name when you make reservations. I'm good to go. So this message really isn't for me. I'm cool. Oh yeah, it's, it's always for us. And there's a real good practical application on here for believers. Did you notice when we read chapter, seven, or chapter 19, verse 17 and 18, there was a word that kept coming up. What's the word? Somebody said it. It starts with an F. Ends with a sh. Flesh. Did you notice that? It says that when Jesus comes back, he's going to defeat the armies. He's going to, the birds are going to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and the flesh of people. And it ends, verse 21, that all the birds will be filled with their flesh. Interesting. If you pay attention to the word of God. Six times the word flesh is mentioned in this passage. Six, we know, is the number, not of God, but the number of man. It's where the number 666, the mark of the beast, comes from. It's the flesh. The number six, it's a picture of the flesh. Flesh is man without God, what he tries to accomplish and do by himself. And that is exactly what we see defeated when Jesus comes back at the second coming. The flesh six times is defeated. You see, the, the Bible has nothing good to say about the flesh. If you study the Bible long enough, you'll figure it out, that the Bible has nothing good to say about the flesh. Man fails when he tries to rely on his flesh apart from God himself. Let me remind you of some scriptures. John 6, 63 says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits how much, church? Nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit. They're life, Jesus said. Paul said in Romans 7, 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, how much good dwells? Nothing good dwells in our flesh, in ourselves, separated apart from God. Philippians 3, 3, Paul said, Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in what? In the flesh. Galatians 5.17 For the flesh lusts against the spirit of God or fights against it and the spirit against the flesh and they're contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. 
How many of you Christians have realized, even since you've accepted Christ, you still have a flesh? How many of y'all realize every day you wake up, the Spirit of God says do this, but the flesh says do this? How many of y'all, since you accepted Christ, you've given into the flesh one or two times and sinned? Okay, look around. Somebody's not raising their hand. They just gave into the flesh and lied. You see, here's the deal. Before we accept Christ, all we are is flesh. And we're doomed. We're, we're doomed. But when we accept Christ, what does He put inside of us? His Spirit. And it's that Spirit that now fights against our flesh that we still have until we get our glorified bodies in heaven someday, and then the flesh will finally be gone. Thank goodness. And here's the deal. Don't miss this, church. Every single day, you and I wake up, whether we realize it or not, in the middle of a spiritual battle. We're reading about World War III here. We're, we're, we're reading about a literal physical battle. Jesus, the Word of God against the flesh, but every one of us every day wakes up in the middle of a battle. I know I do. If you know what I'm talking about, say yes. A battle between the flesh and the spirit. Now there's a great practical spiritual truth for all of us here. Here's the deal. If you want... To win that battle for God, you have to allow God to do the same thing in your life every day to defeat the flesh and get victory over the flesh that He will one day do at His second coming. And what is it He's going to do? He's going to speak the word of His mouth. With the word of His mouth, He will defeat the flesh. That's why, remember what Paul told us in Ephesians 6.10? Remember the armor of God thing? Talking about we're all in a spiritual battle. He said, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And listen, Satan is up before you are ready to fight you. And to fight your, fight your flesh and fight, fight against the spirit. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And here it is. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the what, church? Word of God. Without the Word of God, y'all, we are defenseless. That is why this church is all about this book. That's why this book takes center stage every week. That's why we sometimes have a slogan. We put it on our advertisements. Come to the Orchard Church where the Word of God does the talking. Because we know this is our only answer to defeating our flesh. It's the only answer to spiritual victory. It's the only way. The same thing that will happen at the second coming has to happen in our lives spiritually every day. The only way to defeat the flesh is to apply the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. To read the Word of God, to study the Word of God, to memorize the Word of God, to meditate on the Word of God, and most of all, apply the Word of God. Be doers of the Word and not just hearers only, because when you do the Word, it's real hard. Have you ever noticed this? It's really hard to do the Word of God and do the flesh. You have a choice. You can't do both. It's one, it's one or the other. And we make that decision. You know, and let me say something about discipleship. You hear us talk about discipleship. It's the third of our, our uh, process for disciple making here at the Orchard. Reach, relate, reproduce. That's in our one-on-one -on -one, one discipleship ministry. You know why discipleship is so important? Because it helps people know how to take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and apply it to their lives. 
And if you're here and you're going, yo, I, I need help. I don't know where to start. I don't know where to read. I don't know where to study. Sign up today, right there in your connection card. Sign me up. I want to be discipled. I want somebody to help me. I want somebody to mentor me. I want somebody to train me how to use this sword properly in my life so I can experience victory. And if you're here and you go, you know, I got a pretty good handle on the Bible. I don't really need to be discipled. Well, you know what? Discipleship needs you because there's a lot of people that need a discipler. Sign up. I think we've got training uh, July 30th is our next training. Sign up to be trained, to sit down with somebody and help them with the Word of God so they can gain victory in their Christian life. All Jesus had to do to defeat the flesh... The armies of the earth is speak the word of God and with the sword of his mouth he will devour the flesh, his enemies. Look at verse 21. And the rest were killed, the armies of the earth, with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and the birds were filled with their flesh. You know, it reminds us that Jesus three times was tempted in the wilderness. You remember that? And all three times he was tempted to give into his flesh and what did he do? He quoted the word of God. And that's how he got victory. What a great spiritual truth for all of us Today, Jesus will defeat the armies with the word of God. And then finally, Jesus will defeat the beast and the false prophet. Verse 20, it says, The beast was captured and with him the false prophet, and they were both cast alive into the lake of fire. Jesus will personally, finally, once and for all, deal with these two troublemakers. These two troublemakers we've seen from chapter 16 to 18, for 12 chapters, the beast and the false prophet that are causing all the problems and getting people to try to follow and worship the beast. Jesus himself will deal with these two. He'll take the beast and the false prophet and it says he'll cast them into the lake of fire. You know, it reminds me of a story of two, uh, as, as Jesus will deal with these two, it reminds me of a story of two young men that were troublemakers in this small, small country town. And I mean, they were always causing problems and they were stealing stuff and throwing rocks and bullies to other kids. And, and uh, the mom of these two, two troublemakers was a Christian and she talked to her pastor about it. And the pastor said, I'll tell you what, send them down to my office one by one and, and I'll, I'll, I'll straighten them out. I'll, I'll put the fear of God in them. And so she took the oldest one and she set the two boys down in the living room on the couch and said, you guys are going to go see the reverend today. Go see the pastor. And they're like, eh, hey, whatever. And so the, she said, I'm going to send the older one first. She sent the older one down, and he uh, sat down in the pastor's office across from the pastor. The younger one was sitting at home waiting for his turn. And, and the pastor said to him, he said, son, do you know who God is? And he said, he said, yeah. And he goes, do you know where God is? And the boy was like, no. And he said, I said, do you know where God is? And the boy's like, no. And he got really upset. He's like, do you know where God is? And the boy said no, and he jumped up out of his seat, and he ran out of the office, he ran home, screaming and crying, scared to death, burst into the door, ran into his room, and was just screaming and crying, on his, laying on his bed. Well, his younger brother's like, oh my gosh, I've got to go next. What happened? And so he goes into the room to talk to his brother, and he said, what happened? He said, oh brother, we're really in trouble now. Said, they said, God's missing, and they think we did it. <laughs> well... Jesus himself is going to deal with these two troublemakers. The beast, the antichrist, and the false prophet. And he's going to cast them alive into the lake of fire. We'll get into what the lake of fire is all about in the next couple of chapters. But it's the first time in your Bible you see the lake of fire mentioned. I'm sure you've heard that before, but this is the first time that you see it in the Bible. And, and I don't want to get too far ahead, but people ask this all the time. You know, When people die today, where do they go? 
And we believe the Bible is clear. They go to one of two places. For a believer today, when someone dies and that knows Christ, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that their soul and spirit immediately goes to heaven as is in the presence of the Lord. There's no waiting time or period. They're immediately with the Lord. Aren't you thankful for that? For your loved ones and friends that have gone on to be with the Lord? They're with Him. And we're going to meet them in the air, the Bible says. But for those that die right now without Christ who reject Him and say no to Him, the Bible says they die and their soul and the spirit immediately goes to Hades. Some would say hell. And, and, and the Bible describes Hades as the unseen world. But make no mistake about it, it's a place of torment. Because Jesus said in Luke 16, talking about the rich man and Lazarus, that when the rich man went to Hades, that he was lifted up in torment, crying to get out of there. But right now, no one right now, according to the Bible, is in the lake of fire yet. The first two people to be cast in the lake of fire is the beast and the false prophet by Jesus himself. Followed by Satan a thousand years later. We'll get into that next time in our study. And then the great white throne judgment where all who have rejected Christ will be placed into the lake of fire. We'll get into the details of that, but I just wanted to mention that. Um, we'll get into that actually next time in chapter 20 where we will see Jesus deal with Satan. He will lock him away in the abyss or the bottomless pit for a thousand years, then bring him back up, then cast him into the lake of fire. We'll also look at next time in our study the millennial reign of Jesus Christ and what that's going to look like and the part that we're going to play in that. And, and I want to encourage you guys, we will be out of the book of Revelation next week because it'll be hard for me to be here when I'm in Manila, Philippines. But uh, don't miss next week. This is not, next week is not a week, oh, pastor's gone, week off. No. Come to church because I meant to mention this. John Magnus, our new student director, is going to be speaking next Sunday. And I want you guys to hear his heart. I want you to hear from him. Uh, we, are, we are already so impressed with him and Melody and what they're doing with our students. And so you're not going to want to miss your first opportunity to hear him next week. But as we close this today, Psalm 212 comes to my mind. We all have a choice to make about Jesus. What we're going to do with Jesus. And Psalm 212 says this. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son, Jesus, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. When His wrath is kindled but a little... Blessed are those who put their trust in Him. You see, we all have a choice what we do with Jesus. Will we kiss Him, embrace Him, accept Him, or will we reject Him? Will we be the guest at the marriage supper of the Lamb or the main course at what we read about today? You know, I'm so grateful that today I can tell you on the authority of the Word of God that today God is a God of love and grace and mercy and He offers you an invitation to sit at His table. He offers to allow you to make your reservation in heaven today by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But there will be a day where there will be no more reservations taken. But today you can make your reservation. Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Is your white horse being prepared for you? And as Christians today, we still have a flesh that we deal with every day. And the only way to gain victory over the flesh in that spiritual battle is the same way we just read about today that Jesus through His Word, will defeat the flesh, the armies of this earth, as we read it, we study it, and most of all, as we apply it to our lives. Would you bow your heads this morning with your heads bowed and eyes?